It's the Code St. Luke podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. Hello, welcome to Lockdown Viewing with Code St. Luke Librarian Stephen Tomlinson. That's me, and for the next 30 minutes or so, I'll be providing some recommendations for what to watch and where to watch them. Today, I will be discussing four comedies from the late 1940s and early 1950s, all featuring one of British cinema's most brilliant and versatile performers, Alec Guinness. And those movies are Kind Hearts and Coronets from 1949, The Captain's Paradise from 1953, Man in the White Suit from 1951, and The Lavender Hill Mob, also from 1951 and all of which can be found on the library's Canopy streaming service. I should also credit here the website of the British Film Institute for much of the information that I will be relaying to you. Alec Guinness was a master of nuance and meticulous acting technique, who is probably best remembered today for his rather more serious roles in such later films and television work as Lawrence of Arabia, Bridge on the River Kwai, the serialized adaptation of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, and Star Wars, for which he famously took a percentage and made so much money, he need never have worked again. But early in his acting career, he appeared in light comedic roles, usually for Eatling Studios, known for its brand of whimsical, sweet-natured, if eccentric humor. And it was those comedies that he made for Ealing that really turned him into a star, despite already having appeared in well-received adaptations of Charles Dickens' Oliver Twist and Great Expectations. In a 1989 interview, Alec Guinness claimed never to feel comfortable playing characters too much like himself, and so many of his films, including the early comedies, allowed for physical disguise or a chameleon-like persona in order to complement the interacting talent. But when not doing anything to alter his physical appearance, as a young man in these comedies, he is pleasantly ordinary, like such early film comedians as Buster Keaton or Harold Lloyd, rather than appearing glamorously film starish. I don't think that could ever be said of Alec Guinness. There was something, indeed, rather ordinary about him and why he may have felt the need to sometimes appear in disguise or in some form of chameleon-like alteration, alteration of, his, uh, of his appearance. The first of the four Alec Guinness comedies that I should like to recommend is the elegant, if darkly satirical, Kind Hearts and Coronets from 1949, as I said, in which he plays eight members. That's right, he plays eight members of an aristocratic family in early 20th century England. This is certainly one of Guinness' most celebrated performances and among his most theatrical, too, in which he dresses up as the assorted members of the noble Dascoigne clan, whose vengeful, outcast relation, played by Dennis Price, ingeniously murders his way through his snobbish kinfolk, all played, as I said, in disguise by Guinness. Uh, and he does this in order to inherit the family title. 
And it has to be said, it's all to, uh, to the genius of Alicinus, uh, who really ups the fun by making some of his victims, like the doddering cleric or the harmless photographer, far more sympathetic than others, such as the, uh, the general or the admiral among this uh, aristocratic family. And in doing so, brings a degree of complexity to our amusement at their numerous and eventual demises. Kind Hearts and Coronets was the only Ealing comedy directed by Robert Hammer. And the critical and commercial high point of that director's troubled but often brilliant career. Adapted by Hammer and John Dighton from a relatively little-known Edwardian novel by one Roy Horniman, Kind Hearts and Coronets brilliantly taps a rich vein of dark humor that had largely been neglected in British films since Alfred Hitchcock's departure for Hollywood ten years earlier. But of course, the highlight of the film is Alec Guinness's attention-grabbing performance, which tends to overshadow the masterful playing of Dennis Price himself as the frustrated and penniless character Louis Mazzini, who insouciantly murders his way to the dukedom, denied him by the uh, snobbery of the Descoins and their rejection of his mother, who had the temerity to marry for love. And for this reason, the Dennis Price character grows up in poverty, but nevertheless is still taught to be an aristocrat by his penniless but still aristocratic mother. Similarly impressive to both Guinness and Price is actress Joan Greenwood in the role of Sibella, whose self-serving deviousness certainly matches that of the Dennis Price character. Now, the story is narrated in flashback by that Dennis Price character, Louis, Louis Mazzini, in a letter written from his prison cell. But far from undermining the visual storytelling, that conceit shows us the world as Louis sees it, with an archly detached kind of self-justification that is, in its own way, even more snobbish than that of the members of his highly snobbish clan whom have rejected him because of his mother's desire to marry um, someone the family considered beneath their station. And in doing this, um, the film really, and this is, I think, the, the genius of its um, comedic impulse, it, it allows us to share in the, uh, if perversely so, in the joy of each uh, successive murder. Well, not blinding us, of course, to Louis' own class-based callousness. This is a, uh, this is a very highly trenchant satire of the uh, English class system. Uh, and a very caste-based system it is revealed to be in this movie. Now, the director, Robert Hammer, later listed among his aims for the film, and I'm quoting him here, that of using the English language, which I love, in a more varied and, to me, more interesting way than I had previously had the chance of doing in a film. 
And that's certainly true, as kind hearts abounds with clever wordplay and literary illusion. Watching this film again, as I did last week, is to be reminded of a world much more closely attuned to the antecedents of the great works of English literature, much more so than our own world today. And this is evidenced in the film, for example, in Louis' wry comment after puncturing, <laughs> puncturing excuse me, Lady Agatha Descoigne's hot air balloon, when he wittily appropriates Longfellow in saying, I shot an arrow in the air, and she fell to earth in Berkeley Square. <laughs> Elsewhere, uh, the film alludes to such heavyweights uh, as Shakespeare, Chaucer, and Tennyson, whose lines, kind hearts are more than coronets, and simple faith than Norman blood. And that provides the movie, of course, with, uh, with its title. But not just its title, it also provides the movie with its... It's moral bearings, I would say. Now, 70 years on after the making of this film, it has, it has barely dated at all. And as I said, I saw it again last week. So I can testify to that fact. The first time I saw it was quite a long time ago. And I, I don't think I really had... Um, I was quite young when I saw it and didn't really quite, quite get all of the humor. But um, certainly at the age of 58 today... <laughs> Um, I, I think I fairly apprehended all or certainly most of it. Um, this is, this is truly a classic of, of, of British cinema. Um, and as I said, this is an Ealing comedy. It was, uh, interestingly enough, the only period piece among all of the Ealing comedies. They were otherwise, with this one exception, um, very contemporary. And I'll be discussing a couple of those in a few minutes. But um, just to conclude with Kind Hearts and Coronets, in addition to Guinness's one-of-a-kind performance, this is especially noteworthy for its dry, cynical wit, its trenchant, satirical criticism of England's stifling class system, or really snobbery anywhere, which I guess gives it its, uh, its um, everlasting flavor. Among the other notable aspects of the film, I think, are the rather subtle eroticism in the relationship of the Price and Greenwood characters, which really took me a little by surprise, as this is 1949, after all. Um, and then there's also the ambiguous, rather brilliantly ambiguous ending to the film, which, as I understand it, uh, the American censor um, found a little worrisome and uh, therefore demanded changes, although you should have no worry uh, that uh, those changes are not uh, evident in the print of the film available to watch on Canopy. Okay, let's turn to the second of the four Alec Guinness comedies that I'd like to recommend, and which is also available on Canopy, and that's The Lavender Hill Mob from 1951. The Lavender Hill Mob, the title, by the way, referring to Lavender Hill, a street in Battersea, district of South London, where the film is set, provided Alec Guinness with his very first Oscar nomination. He would receive a further four nominations, uh, securing a Best Actor Oscar in 1958 for The Bridge on the River Kwai, but his uh, 
his role here is a very, very different one, much less serious um, than that in uh, The Bridge on the River Kwai, of course. As he, um, as he plays a baby-faced, mild-mannered, and speech-impaired bank employee named Henry Holland, who hatches a rather ingenious plan to steal gold bullion from the Bank of England, the gold that he is supposed to help protect, and then smuggle it to France right under the authorities' noses, which is always the case, right? I think it's Guinness' genius as an actor that he makes Holland at once so archly dull that he is, at least in the logic of the film, believably beyond suspicion. Yet for us in the audience, still quite entertaining to watch. I mean, it's all so wonderfully exaggerated. His eyes frequently a glint with a kind of wicked scheming, which is, a, which is when you think about it, really another form of disguise. Um, almost like he's doing a miniature Richard III but a highly comedic version of Richard III, you know, in that he's doing these non-literal asides to the audience. Uh, you know, he's sharing the joke with us, almost winking at the viewer as if inviting us to share in the fun that he's clearly having on screen. And in doing so, he is expertly mixing comedy with a mild form of suspense. This is, <laughs> this is an ailing, this is an ailing studios film after all. So, um, there's not that much suspense. It's much too uh, it's much too light and funny for for that. And uh, it's wonderful to watch Guinness enlist his accomplices in the crime, or uh, you know, or when he shows kind of mounting bodily impatience when endless red tape at a French dock keeps preventing the thieves from boarding a ferry that they must catch back to England. Now, The Lavender Hill Mob was the second of three Ealing Studio collaborations between its director, Charles Crichton, and writer T.E.B. Clark. And like all these films under discussion, it's a piece of thoroughly good-natured escapism and whimsy. The fantasy here in this film is that, the, uh, is that of the perfect robbery, you know, one million pounds in good gold bullion. <laughs> That's 1951 value, of course, don't forget. Um, gold bullion stolen, as I said, from the Bank of England and smuggled to France in the form of Eiffel Tower paperweights. Paperweights <laughs> made in the form of the, of, of the Eiffel Tower. Uh, and of course, it barely matters. Uh, no, no real spoilers here. It barely matters that in the end, the meek master criminal played by Ali Guinness and his principal accomplice played by actress Stanley Holloway, are, are both captured. I mean, in 1951, no character in a British or Hollywood film, for that matter, could be seen to profit from a crime. That just wasn't allowed. I, existing censorship laws on both sides of the Atlantic um, forbade such a thing. And, you know, as this is a kneeling comedy, we mostly view their crime as a harmless daydream, really a lark of a kind, and, and ultimately a, a really a, a, a mild gesture of defiance against uh, the social conformity of the time. It's really a, a form of escapism for the audience. In 1951, of course, in Britain, this, uh, this was still a time of when... Um, when people were undergoing shortages as a result of uh, World War II, 
still very much in the um, afterglow of the victory, yet um, yet not reaching the fulfillment of the country's economic uh, promise. Um, for all the brilliance of their initial plan, um, Alec Guinness and his accomplices are finally undone by a <laughs> peculiarly and highly specifically English failing, and that is a lack of competence in foreign languages. And that's, that's one that I am all too, too aware of myself. Um, this happens when, um, when uh, Stanley Holloway's character's instruction to his French assistant not to sell paperweights from the boxes marked R is misunderstood because um, the way he pronounces R sounds like the way the French pronounce A. <laughs> um, Holland and Pendlebury, Guinness and Holloway, both nice, gentle, and unthreatening in their nonconformity. And this is, of course, a crime without victims. Um, and this is a movie, um, even uh, light years away from the more menacing, though no more successful gang of the Lady Killers and other Ealing comedy of a few years later in 1955. And even their partners in crime in this film, the Cockney Professional Thieves, played by Sidney James and Duffy Bass, they, they carry not a grain, not a single grain of ruthlessness. The film is just gently satirizing the establishment, the social conformity of the time. And it's, it's, it's much more typical of these films um, uh, rather than the the, the more edgy social satire that uh, we find in Kind Hearts and Cornets. Um, the climactic car chase is interesting. It's uh, clearly an homage to um, the car chases of the silent comedy era. And it's, it's, it's fun for all of that. And uh, so just to sum up, although not as brilliant or as consistently funny as Kind Hearts and Coordinates, The Lavender Hill Mob is still highly enjoyable, however lightweight and absolutely characteristic of the charming, idiosyncratic talents of both Alec Guinness and the actors who um, make up his band of likable eccentrics who briefly challenge authority before passively accepting a kind of defeat. You know, a couple of things that caught my attention in watching The Lavender Hill Mob is that the surprising, that there is this surprising appearance early in the film of the actress Audrey Hepburn. This really caught me by surprise. I had no idea. I mean, indeed, I wasn't even sure that it really was her and had to check that it was so, so small is the part. Literally just a walk-on, really. Now, I, I did look into this, and reportedly she was supposed to have had a major part in the film, but other commitments prevented this. So Alec Guinness lobbied for her to be given this walk-on part in playing an apparent consort of Holland's when he is um, briefly seen to have gotten away with things. Of course, he doesn't really. Um, and in this scene, this brief scene, we see that she is given some money by Holland, which he calls a birthday present. <laughs> And uh, she responds uh, with her only line in the film, how sweet of you, before departing as quickly as she had entered the scene. 
As it turns out, this was uh, the first film featuring Hepburn to be given major distribution in the United States. Uh, I mean, Roman Holiday, which uh, was her first big break, or at least among her first big breaks, was still two years away. It wasn't released until 1953. But you know, um, Audrey Hepburn's appearance in the movie is not the only surprising actress appearance in The Lavender Hill Mob. The actor Robert Shaw also appears in it. Uh, and of course, uh, Shaw is later famous for his roles in such films as Jaws, For Mushroom With Love, and A Man For All Seasons. And uh, he makes his film debut here in a word, wor- wordless, excuse me, a wordless role as a chemist during a police exhibition sequence. That's The Lavender Hill Mob, available to view on Canopy. Okay, let's now turn briefly to the third of four comedies all starring Alec Guinness that I would like to recommend for today. And that is The Man in the White Suit, which, like the previous film, is also from 1951. But this time, things are set in the contemporary manufacturing heartland, at least back then, of Northern England. Nevertheless, Alleginus shines again in this really quite ageless satire about the invention of a fabric that never gets dirty and never wears out. Kind of like the everlasting light bulb. You know, the theory being that such an invention would ultimately prove just too threatening to vested interests. And in The Man with the White Suit, um, he plays a nebbish, misfit scientist and single-minded inventor named... Sidney Stratton, who goes from lurking in laboratories to being champion of the boardroom. That is until textile industry bosses and unions alike grasp that his wonder cloth spells doom for their livelihoods. Hence the theory of the everlasting light bulb. Nevertheless, he's uh, quite an idealistic character and really wants to share his invention with the world. He has no great ulterior motive, no great desire to become rich. He's doing it for the benefit of the world. But it, much of the comedy that uh, follows is that the world really doesn't want his invention, <laughs> however much he would like to it, impose it upon the world. Um, and ultimately, at the end of the film, he's chased through the cobbled streets of um, what looks to me like the Manchester area of England. In fact, yes, recalling now it is Manchester. Almost like he's a public enemy or um, just continuing with my silent movie motif, like a Buster Keaton character from decades earlier, you know, being chased through some incredibly inventive Hollywood set and going through any number of impossible stunts in order to elude the crowd. Not that Guinness himself is performing any great stunts here, but the chase itself is highly reminiscent of those found in silent comedies. Um, he does all of this, his inventions, his, um, his, you know, the impossibility of dealing with both industrialists and union officials. He does all of this aided only by an industrialist renegade daughter played uh, most uh, charmingly with a very croakish voice by Joan Greenwood. And she's really the only one 
<laughs> who doesn't think the Guinness character to be a uh, socially maladjusted lunatic. Um, and there's also a small girl who who shares in uh, in Alec Guinness' uh, character's innocence, uh, a quality that the actor so really, really quite beautifully projects in this film, um, among among other among others. Um, but especially in this one, he's very much the innocent, the naif in many cases, to some extent, and uh, and really reminds me quite pungently of the great comics of the silent era, especially Buster Keaton, but also Harold Lloyd and to a lesser extent, perhaps uh, Charlie Chaplin. Now this is a character that uh, actor Fred McMurray, the, you know, the, the nebbish uh, idealistic inventor. Uh, this character type is something that I'm sure Fred McMurray had uh, must have studied in the man with the white suit uh, as he would channel it to great effect decades later in um, a number of Disney movies. Now, however gentle and fun on the surface, the man in the white suit, which started life as a stage play, is, I think, among the more cynical of the Ealing comedies. Um, in that, of course, the invention of the foundrick causes... Um, you know, both um, in industry bosses and unions to find a, a certain common cause in overcoming the threat to their mutual self-interest. Nevertheless, of course, there's a great deal of humor to be had along the way. And all of the elements characteristic of comedies um, from Ealing Studios in this period are, are present here. You know, the charming, if eccentric characters, the irreverent, if mild-mannered wit, and the Physical slapstick comedy, also reminiscent of the silent period. The Man in the White Suit was Alexander McKendrick's second film as director, and the first of his two films with Alec Guinness, the other being The Lady Killers, four years later. But as in all of these, the entire film rests on the shoulders of Alec Guinness himself, and he once again excels, carries, carries off the role with aplomb, Though, interestingly, his role here is somewhat softened and more starry-eyed and even more romantic, at least potentially romantic, in his relationship with the Joan Greenwood character. Um, and this is something that we really hadn't seen in either Kind Hearts and Coronets or the Lavender Hill mob. But... Um, he is no less memorable for his role here in The Man with the White Suit, available to view on Canopy. All right, let's conclude with the fourth of my recommendations for early Alec Guinness comedies to view on Canopy. And that's the 1953 film, The Captain's Paradise. The only one among these four not made by Ealing Studios, though it's certainly similar in spirit. In The Captain's Paradise, Alec Guinness plays the rather uncharacteristically rakish Captain Henry St. James, a character who certainly thinks he has the perfect life. He shuttles a passenger ship between Gibraltar and Spanish Morocco 
keeping totally separate lives and two very different women in both ports of call. On English soil is his wife, Maud, played by Celia Johnson, who's a kind of dutiful, self-sacrificing housewife that must have seemed out of date even in 1953. While on Moroccan soil is his firebrand lover and mistress, Nita, played by Hollywood's Yvonne DiCarlo. Now, all of this is set up as a male wish-fulfillment fantasy, in which with Maud, he gets to eat at home and go to bed early, and she takes quite good care of him, while with Nita, it's dancing and dining out late every night, as that's about as risque as things might get for 1953. I mean, Henry, the, the Guinness character, thinks he has it made and boasts of this to other men. But of course, there's a hitch and a comeuppance in the end that must be paid by him. Now, this kind of farce might easily have become quite dated in retrospect. And while not all of it works today in 2021, I think thanks to the inherently likable Guinness himself, as well as some surprisingly ahead-of-its-time gender politics, the film mostly gets away with it. As it helps that it, instead of being dopes to be fooled, the two women central to his escapades are allowed their essential humanity and even a triumph of a kind at the expense of the not-so-good captain who only thinks he has them pigeonholed into roles that cater to his mutually exclusive desires before his selfish world inevitably collapses around him, and in a surprisingly modern way. The dutiful wife and sexual firebrand opposites of the two women are fully demonstrated in the course of the film to be aspects of each, which both women need to express. But this is a comedy, of course, and much of the humor arises from the Guinness character's initial shock and then growing understanding that, well, male-female relations weren't created just for his personal benefit. Now, never breaking control, Alec Guinness, again, gives us here a fully rounded character. If this time a cat of a character who's, who's still a lot of fun to watch, especially <laughs> his misplaced arrogance and in our knowledge that he is bound to fall. And as is typical of the gentle nature of these films and the Ealing and Guinness spirit as a whole, as the captain's paradise concludes, the not-so-good captain may no longer have his boat or his paradise to enjoy but the viewer senses that maybe he'll nevertheless be a little more fair to the next woman who enters his life. That's The Captain's Paradise, available to view on the library streaming service, Canopy.
Okay, that's all for now, folks. I hope you've enjoyed these recommendations and that you will join me next time at uh, this time next week for more movie talk and television talk. You've been listening to Lockdown Viewing with Code St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. Remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at stomlinson at codesaintluke.org or by means of the library's Facebook page, or even by calling the library at 514-485-6900 and leaving a message. All the best, happy viewing, and bye-bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Code St. Luke podcast today. We launched the podcast and telephone broadcasting service in March 2020. The idea was to get content from Parks and Recreation and the library into your homes using Zoom, telephone, and podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, please give it a rating and review at Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. For more information about programs at the library, visit csllibrary.org. For information about the city of Code St. Luke, visit codesaintluke.org. Have a great day.